Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Jenny Trinitapoli. Jenny teaches sociology at the University of Chicago. Her training is in primarily two areas, social demography and the sociology of religion. Bridging these two fields, her work features the demographer's characteristic concern with data and denominators and an insistence on connecting demographic processes to questions of meaning. She has written extensively on the role of religion in the AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan in Africa. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss her newly published book, An Epidemic on Uncertainty, Navigating HIV and Young Adulthood in Malawi, which has been brought out by the University of Chicago Press in 2023. Jenny, I welcome you to this conversation and thank you so much for giving me the time and opportunity. Oh, thanks, Rutiparna, for hosting this conversation and for your interest in the book. I will want to say how much I appreciate New Books Network because there are so many amazing books specifically in sociology every year, more than any of us can read. And I find these conversations really helpful for figuring out um, what to read carefully and um, setting priorities for knowing things uh, in the discipline. So thank you very much. It's so good to hear you talk about NBN and appreciate the work that we are doing. Thank you so much. And on that note, you know, I really enjoyed reading the book. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the motivation behind writing this particular work. Sure. Well, the short answer to that question is that, you know, I set out to write an article about HIV uncertainty, and I wanted to write an article that had more theoretical heft than some of the uh, work that some of the empirical work that I had written earlier in my career. And it kept getting longer and longer. And um, as the article sort of surpassed 15,000 words, I realized that and I kept coming up with more and more material that I wanted to include, I realized that this was going to be a book project and not an article. But related to that is the fact the the the, the fact that I set out 
to write this book because I felt like one of the most important things I had learned from studying HIV for nearly two decades, specifically um, working in uh, various parts of Malawi, Balaka in particular, was the most important thing I had learned, which what was had never circulated very widely in the literature. And that was the fact that paying attention to what people don't know specifically about their HIV status helps us understand the epidemic much better. And that emphasis on uncertainty specifically around HIV led me to more questions about uncertainty in people's lives and what it means and how we can study it in an empirical framework. And that kept me busy for a while. Interesting that you talk about this process of writing a book. So could you also talk a little bit about your field site? Sure. So the data for this uh, for this book come from the Sagol Atanzi study set in Balaka, Malawi. And Balaka is a really, really interesting place. I describe it in the book as a growing district capital and simultaneously a quintessential hinterland. And what I mean by that is trying to situate Malawi and Balaka in particular um, by the characteristics that are really important for what we're studying. Balaka is a town in the southern region of Malawi, and Malawi's HIV epidemic is um, about 10 or 11 percent uh, HIV prevalence for adults nationally. But the HIV epidemic has always been more concentrated, higher levels in the southern area. So Balaka is characterized by a really, uh, a, a really severe HIV epidemic for a long time. Balaka is also characterized by matrilineal patterns of uh, matrilineal and matrilocal family patterns. And what that means is that women stay in their natal homes and upon marriage, husbands move in with wives. So in designing a longitudinal study to understand young adulthood, we wanted to set this study in a place where it would be possible to follow women over long, long periods of time. So that was another like important characteristic of Balaka. Balaka is also a market town that's situated um, between like two crossroads in the country. So there is a long road that bisects uh, the country of Malawi. Malawi is shaped almost like a, it's shaped like a flame. Even the national soccer team is called the flames. And there's one road that bisects the country north to south called the M1. And then cutting across the country in the Southern area is a railroad that runs from Mozambique all the way through Malawi and into Zambia. And so Malawi and so Balaka is situated at that intersection between this main road north to south and the railway uh, east to west. And in Balaka, they have market day every day. It's a really, really important place for trading goods, even though it's neither the commercial capital nor the political capital in the country. So it's a place that kind of has gotten overlooked in a lot of research that focuses on cosmopolitan centers and capitals. And it's also surrounded by rural areas where most people 
exist, they survive on subsistence agriculture. And so it has these, um, if I can add one more sort of fascinating characteristic about Malawi, um, it's ethnically diverse, um, about four or five ethnic groups uh, characterize the Southern area. And it's also religiously diverse. Um, with a large Muslim population, a large Catholic mission, growing Pentecostal groups, and um, a lot of Presbyterian and what we call mission Protestants. And so it's this ethnically and religiously diverse market trading town with high HIV prevalence that follows matrilineal descent. And those are the characteristics that um, made it an ideal place for this setting. And that also drew me to working there in the first place and then subsequently over a long period of time. Interesting. Uh, you also mentioned that your research takes place at three intersections. So how does that happen? Oh, sure. So the first intersection I kind of described, this intersection, the literal intersection between this railway um, crudding across the country and the road that bisects it, where a lot of um, where a lot of trade and migration is happening. The second intersection that I talk about in the book is this intersection between HIV and fertility. And my collaborator, Sarah Yateman, and I started discussing this in graduate school when Sarah was focused on fertility, and I was really focused on the topic of religion and HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. And in putting our interests together, we designed the TLT study to look at um, HIV and fertility in tandem with one another. We felt that Many research teams were studying HIV on one side or fertility on the other, specifically with roots in the family planning movement. But thinking about young adulthood, we observed that it was really important to look at how young adults navigated the steps of family formation with this severe HIV epidemic as the context that they were making decisions in. And the reason for this is because the highest number of new HIV infections happen during young adulthood, during the very same years that age-specific fertility rates are the highest. This is when young adults want to be forming their families, they're getting married, they're having children. And it makes sense to me because it made sense to us because the you know international community's approach to HIV prevention, specifically in Anglophone countries, was A, abstain from sex, B, be faithful to one partner, or C, use condoms to prevent HIV transmission. Now, when you're a young adult, you're in a community where um, marriage tends to be early and childbearing is valued and also tends um, to take place early. Age of first marriage in Balaka is about age 18 and age at first birth, age 19. Um, you know, abstinence and condom use are off the table when you're trying to have children, right? And so, and being faithful to one partner well, your own behavior is within your own control, but your partner's behavior is never fully within one's own control. And so we really wanted to conduct research that brought HIV and fertility together substantively and allowed us to study it 
in um, in a really, really clear way empirically to try to understand the causal order of things in young adults' lives. So the substantive intersection concerns HIV and fertility. I talk about a third intersection, maybe an intellectual intersection, which takes place between what we think of as the sort of quantitative and empirical tradition, the numbery tradition of demography and empirical social sciences, especially quantitative. And then on the other hand, a more theoretical and ethnographic tradition that I find very rich, very important for thinking about relationships, for thinking about social life, and for thinking about thick concepts like uncertainty, for example, and trying to bring those two things together rather than having, you know, the theoretical insights over here and the good quantitative estimates over here on this other side, trying to bring them together and work in a tradition that also treats that as an inter that as, as an intersection in terms of a way of knowing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh you know you're talking about of course the research site so uh what are the methodological tools that you use in the study and how do you use data in this particular book yeah so the Sagola Tanzi study is an ongoing longitudinal study of young adults the study was designed in 2007. It was funded in 2008. And we started data collection in 2009. And so the, the backbone of the data for this study is longitudinal survey data from women who were between 15 and 25 when we started the study. And we have 10 years of data from women um, and from a small sample of young men. We also enrolled male partners, so the husbands and boyfriends that the women were making decisions with uh, over the course of the study. So this longitudinal partner-based uh, population representative sample over a decade is the backbone of the study. And this is what we've used for measuring HIV prevalence over time, looking at um, marriages, divorces, births, and also studying HIV uncertainty. In addition to the survey data, I use a wide variety of other kinds of data from my own field notes written during this in, during this decade, something another type of data that features strongly in the book is ethnographic data that was collected by a research assistant Gertrude Finiza, who is now an MA student at the University of Denver, and she collected ethnographic data both in Balaka town and in one of the rural, more rural villages at the edge of our catchment area. And her insights from the ethnographic material about daily life, about women's conversations, about fertility, about their marriages, and about HIV also feature really heavily in the book. I also use data that is sort of semi-archival from newspapers, NGO reports and other data sets that are widely used to try to understand the 
population changes specifically around HIV in Malawi over the period of a couple of decades. Right. Uh, I also want to know about the kind of empirical parameters that you create to track the HIV epidemic in Malawi. Ah, the task of measuring uncertainty is a really big one. And the value of this book rests on uh, rests on this really, right? Um, I became really interested in don't know responses when I was a graduate student working on a project that was then called the Malawi Diffusion and Ideational Change Project. And in that survey, which is the best really in the region at the time, I worked on that survey in 2004 and 2005, I noticed that when we asked Likert scale questions, what is the likelihood that you are infected with HIV right now to men and to women? Between 15 and 20% either gave don't know responses or refused to answer the question. And that's a really high level of basically unanalyzable data. If you're a quantitative um, analyst and you don't like throwing data away or deletion of cases, or if you don't like multiple imputation um, uh, very much. So what we did in the Sagola Tanzi study was adopt a technique to use uh, sub to measure subjective probabilities with 10 beans and a cup. And the idea here is that people can give probabilistic answers to questions about a lot of different things in their lives when the questions are asked clearly and upon a clear time horizon. So we didn't start out with questions, with heavy questions about HIV and things like that. But giving the respondents 10 beans, we asked them to tell us about the likelihood that, um, imagine this between you and me, Rituparna, like if we were going to play um, chess right now, who would win, you or me? And you might answer, if you're a really good chess player, you're going to tell me that like, I don't stand a chance and you're going to put nine beans on the plate. Um, if you've never played the game before and you think that I'm pretty good or that I might be good, you're going to put just a few beans showing that you don't think that it's very likely that you would beat me in a game that we played today. Five beans, of course, represents a 50-50 chance of that thing happening. So we started with questions that were really light. What's the likelihood that we go uh, that you go to the market today? Um, before before the day ends. What about the likelihood of you going to the market before this weekends? And then we also asked questions about the likelihood of being a victor in a game that's really in a game called Bao that's really popular not only in Malawi but across the region. And then we moved to more carefully designed questions about our research interests about the likelihood of still being enrolled in school a year from now for girls who were schooling, about the likelihood of having enough food in your household to get through the month. And we also asked people about the likelihood that they were infected with HIV right now, that they would become infected with HIV in within the year, or that they would become infected with HIV in their lifetimes. And in order to use this data, what I did was set two thresholds for measuring uncertainty. 
I characterized people who put four, five, or six beans in the answers to these questions about their HIV status or about new infections, likely new infections. Four, five, or six beans, I characterize them as experiencing acute uncertainty. And then I have another threshold, which is the expression of any uncertainty. If someone put zero beans, they are confident that they do not have HIV right now, and they are confident that they're not going to get it. And if they put 10 beans, they're basically telling us that they have a diagnosis, right? Or that they know that they are living with HIV. So anything between one and nine beans, I experience, I categorized as some uncertainty, any uncertainty. And all the analyses that I do in the book actually are um, conducted with both of these different thresholds, acute uncertainty and any uncertainty to demonstrate to readers how prevalent HIV uncertainty is in a population. And the answer to that is as high as 40% um, and as or 60% at any given point in time, even though HIV prevalence in the sample never goes far above 14%. Okay. So uh, we were talking about it, but I would sort of like to know more about how you theorize uncertainty and locate the specter of HIV in this particular context of Malawi? Sure. That's a great question. And I'll say that the theoretical chapter was the hardest one for me to write and the one that I rewrote um, the most times, I think. Um, you know, I try to give a definition of uncertainty in the in the book and also a set of characteristics for how to use the how to use the term and the reason for this is because i've noticed in the social sciences that a lot of people make a distinction for example in economics there's a night a very famous nightian distinction between risk and uncertainty where people think, knights seemed to think that risk was measurable and uncertainty was not measurable. And that was the key difference. But a lot of thinkers write about uncertainty distinctly from this. And people refer to um, right now, right, December 2023 as being an uncertain time, right? It's uncertain economically. It's uncertain because of global conflict. It's uncertain because of new diseases um, that we're managing globally. And a lot of people will nod along and agree that like this does seem like it's a time of uncertainty. But I think that if we're going to characterize sometimes as more uncertain than others, we should have some way of measuring that and of thinking about it empirically rather than using uncertainty as this kind of decorative concept, right? It's always uncertain um, because we never know what the future is will hold, right? The future is uncertain because the future is going to be informed by things that are not yet known. So the definition that I offer of uncertainty is uncertainty referring to epistemic situations in which the salience of the unknown and the unknowable eclipses the relevance of known factors. And I don't know that this is necessarily going to be a decisive definition. I think it's one that people could argue with and I hope revise uh, into the future as their own work, but as their own work develops. 
or other for other scholars who are thinking about and writing about uncertainty. But I try to differentiate it from ignorance. I try to differentiate uh, uncertainty from vulnerability. And um, in especially in emphasizing the possibility of surprise that is involved in uncertainty. Whereas vulnerability um, or precarity are concepts that also are really sort of salient and related to uncertainty, but someone in a precarious economic situation may not be experiencing very much uncertainty at all about their economic situation, given that they know that they will not be able to pay their bills this month, right? Or um, provide holiday gifts for their children. There are lots of things that are actual, that, that situation is very bad, but it's not necessarily uncertain for that family. It's certain. So those are the things that I try to work out in differentiating um, uncertainty from these uh, related concepts, such as bias or ignorance or risk or vulnerability. And then I offer kind of a list of 10 um, characteristics or ways that we can think about uncertainty, including that um, uncertainty is a specific category rather than a residual category. And it's something that we can um, identify, it's something that's present in people's lives, not just the, not simply the absence of something else, such as knowledge, right? Um, I also talk about uncertainty as it's related to time horizons is something that can be related both to present circumstances and to what we anticipate about future events. And then I think one of the more distinctive things about my approach is this emphasis um, that uncertainty is measurable and we can infer it from good proxies, good survey measures, um, skilled ethnographers will observe it in their interactions, and we see multiple examples of that through um, Gertrude's ethnographic field notes in the book. And then it's something that we should take time to measure. You know, Jenny, this also leads me to ask a question, of course, which as a sociologist, you may also be familiar with. We often asked, uh, we are often asked these questions, but uh, can uncertainty be an empirically measurable phenomena? And what would be your take on it? So I think it is. Um, and the example that um, I think the clearest example in the book is about uh, HIV uncertainty, this um, lack or the un the un 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 uncertainty about people's HIV status. Do you have the virus now? And is it likely that you will get it? in a short time horizon and during any time in your life. I think the empirical data that um, we have on this is extreme is extremely clear that uncertainty about HIV surpasses HIV prevalence in the population and that it matters a lot for people's relationships and for their health and for how they think about their lives. But there are a lot of different other different kinds of uncertainties, such as relationship uncertainty or livelihood uncertainty. Of course, all the examples that I'm giving are empirical examples from my book, but I also observe uncertainty a lot among the undergraduates that I teach at the University of Chicago, right? They are uncertain, they experience uncertainty Um about their futures, specifically their livelihoods, their careers, and their relationships. 
And that uncertainty can be particularly acute at points of transition in people's lives. And it's something that happened that I think is a characteristic of individuals, but it's also, I argue, a characteristic of populations and that people um, move in and out of this state of uncertainty. It's not necessarily the case that Jenny's an uncertain person who experiences uncertainty all the time and Rituparna's you know, not that kind of a person, right? She has, she's more certain. No, there's uncertainty in the population and you and I might both move in and out of states of uncertainty and we might occupy states of uncertainty for differing lengths of time, depending on our lives and depending on how long it takes for that kind of uncertainty to get resolved. So I suggest that we can measure it, but that we have to do it in domain-specific ways and that we have to think about the way that time and, um, yeah, that time horizons factor into the way that we're measuring uncertainty. So I wouldn't set out to measure uncertainty as like a global thing, as a global measure, but I would talk about um, uncertainty about uh, something that I call existential uncertainty, uncertainty about our own survival, or um, uncertainty about HIV specifically, uncertainty about health, uncertainty about relationships. I would posit that those are measurable and that we can do more to measure them. Oh, right. Interesting. And of course, when we're talking on measurement, uh, we also have to talk about the people, right? I mean, how do people in Malawi make sense of this epidemic? And if you could give some examples from your own work. Yeah. So one of the one of my favorite passages from the book, and it comes from Gertrude's field notes, to exemplify uncertainty, not from the survey perspective, but really through the day-to-day -day interactions. It's um this vignette is uh part, it's part of the opening of chapter four. And Gertrude is going with a to uh with 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 a friend to another friend's house to braid hair. And they're braiding the woman's hair. It's the first time Gertrude has met this. Um, character who I call Linda. Um, they're braiding Linda's hair, engaging in a lot of chit chat, learning about each other's lives. They're sitting outside and uh, there's a baby crying inside. And Linda asks Gertrude to go bring the baby to her. And Gertrude goes and gets the baby. And she, when Linda starts nursing the baby, they're continuing to talk about their relationships. And the baby bites her while the baby is breastfeeding. And Linda looks at the baby and says to the baby, don't you bite me. I might be HIV positive. And that sort of utterance of I might be HIV positive, right, around breastfeeding, um, especially in the context of Linda's narration about uncertainty she has about her relationship, uncertainty about her health, and a lot of other things about the context of her life, really to me revealed a lot about how people understand HIV today. Testing is prevalent right now. Is um, People get tested, women are getting tested in antenatal care, um, and testing technologies are widely available in Balaka. And one of the great transformations that's happened 
you know, in the world in the last decade and a half, and specifically in Malawi, since I've been working on HIV, is the availability of antiretroviral therapies, which people who need antiretrovirals are getting them and they're getting them um, on the day that they receive an HIV diagnosis. So it's really spectacular, the transformation of a deadly disease for which there was no treatment when I started collecting data in this area in 2004 to now where people are treating HIV and managing it very, very well. But even though treatment and testing is widely available now, there's this st there's still this I might be HIV positive, such as what Linda conveyed to her friends who she didn't know extremely well, right? The hairstylist and Gertrude, who she's meeting for the first time. This wasn't the revelation of a deep secret or a big fear. It was a kind of offhanded comment. And so HIV has changed a lot. And but in people's lives, it still really looms as this uncertainty, one that is treatable and manageable, but still very salient to how young adults understand their lives and um, the past and the and the and their and how they understand their relationships, their health and the conditions that they are vulnerable to. Right. And how are HIV and young adulthood connected to particularly maybe concerns of demography like fertility and mortality? Ah, sure. This is a great question. I mean, I, I kind of gave a glimpse at this. I mean, because uh, in the earlier part of our conversation, um, when I explained that the young, I call this, I call young adulthood the most epidemiologically dangerous period of a person's life, because this is where the they are most likely to contract HIV. Of course, it is true that people contract HIV in their 30s and in their 40s and later on um, in in that and 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 even at later stages, but the most number of new infections happen in Malawi between the ages of fifteen and twenty four, and the second most concentrated period is between the ages of twenty five and thirty four. So, if young adults make it to their mid thirties without contracting HIV. They are, which means making it through a good chunk or the majority of their childbearing years without contracting HIV, it's unlikely that they're going to contract it later on in life. And this is because uh, it's for both social and biological reasons that um, women in particular are especially vulnerable during the years that they are having children. So that's the way that HIV is um, really strongly connected to fertility for young adulthood. Now, mortality, of course, it's not surprising to know that um, HIV, um, people living with HIV 
have shorter life expectancy than um, than women and men who don't have the virus. Um, so mortality uh, is even though mortality related to HIV has declined dramatically thanks to new antiretroviral treatments, people living with HIV are still at a higher risk of death. And communities that have high burdens of HIV prevalence have a higher burden of mortality. So the connection to sort of both sides of fertility and mortality is um, even though young adults are not dying of HIV as young adults, um, they will be aging with HIV and will have um uh, they, their, their, their lives will be cut short because aging with HIV, especially in a place where second and third line, um, antiretrovirals where drug resistance becomes a problem and second and third line treatments aren't always available. Um, people with HIV are living longer lives with HIV, but they're not living as long as they should. Right. Uh, you know, my last question, because you mentioned that this is a longitudinal study and it's going to be also ongoing. So how do you see the future scope of research pan out? Well, there are a couple of questions in my mind about the study of uncertainty. One is thinking about HIV and the life course in Balaka. So how does does uncertainty, for example, um, be, does it, is, is uncertainty reduced as women in our study age and as they age out of the most epidemiologically dangerous period of their lives, right? Uncertainty levels are very high, uh, among the young adults that we studied. And I think rightly so, because they are living in a period that we know to be, um, one in which new infections um, are, are, are very, very common. So one is a curiosity about how uncertainty evolves over the life course, wanting to um, extend our current study and follow these women over time. But there's another way that I'm thinking about future research, which is more comparative. So maybe taking some of these insights about HIV in Malawi, about relationships, uncertainty in Malawi, and trying to translate those to different kinds of uncertainties that characterize other populations in other parts of the world. You know, uncertainty isn't just a characteristic of Balaka Malawi. I mean, I measured it there and worked with collaborators and, um, have written this book about why uncertainty is something we should pay attention to, why it's prevalent and visible in this population. But this isn't the only place in the world that's uncertain. Like I said, I see uncertainty um, among my undergraduates here. I experience it in my own life. I was on sabbatical. I was lucky to be on sabbatical two years ago when I was finishing the book at Bocconi University in Milan. And um, there's a lot of discussion about uncertainty in the Italian context and across Europe, for example, thinking about how uncertainty affects childbearing, um, specifically fertility intentions uh, in low fertility contexts, such as Italy. And to that, I would add contexts like the United States and South Korea, where we're seeing 
low birth rates, um, and not necessarily a big concern with HIV for young adults, but uncertainties in other domains of life, specifically economic and health-related uncertainties, um, like, you know, related to um, COVID for sure, but also other conditions that are chronic. So I would, I'm thinking in two directions. One is the life course direction, wanting to continue work in Malawi for as long as I can. And the other is a comparative direction where in the future, you know, I hope to be asking questions about uncertainty with collaborators, uh, working in other contexts, right? Such as the United States, such as Italy, such as South Korea. Right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Jenny, for uh, talking to me today for uh, NBN. This was a very, very rich and engaging conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book and listening to you. So thank you once again. Thanks so much for your engagement and for inviting me to share about this work. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate what you do. <laughs>